Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Brandon Wolf. Brandon is a Pulse nightclub survivor and nationally recognized gun safety and LGBTQI civil rights activist. Growing up, Brandon had a difficult time finding acceptance for who he was from his family, friends, school, and hometown. He auditioned for a job that brought him to Orlando, Florida. This is where he found his chosen family and began to learn to love himself and be comfortable with who he is in the world. Finding refuge in gay bars and being surrounded by his friends, he did what so many of us do and went out on Saturday night, June 12th, 2016. Tragedy often strikes for someone, and as you'll hear, that's what happened for Brandon after that night. He's now the Central Florida Development Officer and Media Relations Manager for Equality Florida and works to end violence through action. Let's hear Brandon's story. Today, we are so happy to be here joined with Brandon Wolf, and we just really appreciate you taking some time to spend some time with us today and get to know you better and introduce you to some of our audience and take some time to talk about life, where you've been, where you're going, and, and what you've learned, and maybe share some things with some people that they may not know about you and get to know you better. So thank you for being yeah. here today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Brandon, we so I know that you're in Orlando to today, but you didn't grow up in Orlando. Where, where was uh, your childhood at? So I grew up in a rural town in very small town, Oregon, a town called Canby. And, you know, it's one of those three stoplight, no movie theater. Everybody goes to the same grocery store towns. And the truth is that, you know, I moved to Orlando in, in like 2008 or 2009 because I was looking for a place where I could belong, where I could really be myself. My childhood was a journey of, uh, you know, self-acceptance. And I really struggled with living in a community that, you know, didn't really look like me, didn't really love like me, and trying to find where I fit in and all of that. Did you have, was, was there siblings as well with, with you at this point in your life? Yeah. So I grew up with two brothers and a sister. And I think it's, you know, we could, my family story could probably be its own podcast episode, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think what's important for people to note is just that I've, I've been on a really interesting and complex family journey. Uh, my mom passed away when I was 12. And so I, I really grew up with, you know, parents and siblings that weren't my biological family. Um, and for that reason, I, I was the only black kid in the family. And, and that sort of translated to my experience broadly in the community as well. I remember when I graduated high school, there were about 2,000 students in the school and, and only 11 of us were Black. And so my, mm -hmm. my entire childhood experience was really feeling like I was on the outside looking in um, at other people who, who knew so naturally how to fit in. What were some of the tools like growing up that you used to get, get through that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I feel like I'm still on that journey. Obviously, I've come a long way. It's been a long time. Um, and the world has progressed a lot since then as well. You know, it wasn't just that as a, as a mixed race kid in a primarily white town that I felt out of place. I was also a queer kid in a yeah. town that didn't have a lot of out queer people, right? And so there was sort of this, this compounding um, struggle to fit in because all of my identities felt like other 
in the town that I grew up in. And so, you know, there, I leaned on a lot of things. I leaned on friends. I, I leaned on chosen family. I dove headfirst into extracurricular activities and the things that I was really passionate about. Um, you know, I think a lot of young people do that. They, they find their niche. They find the thing that they're, they're talented at and they, they dive headfirst into it because it gives them that sense of affirmation and satisfaction that, that, the spaces that are supposed to be safest really don't. So I did all of those things. I, I think my senior year, I was in seven different clubs, president of two or three of them, student body president, uh, you know, in, in musical theater, I had a job, I was doing everything. And, and the truth is that I was probably running away from having to have really tough conversations about not fitting in by diving headfirst into busying myself with work. Brandon, I can definitely relate to that. The way you were describing your senior year of high school, it sounded sort of familiar to my experience, you know, just being in overcommitting myself with, you know, clubs and and all of those things, and then working and being in the plays and being involved in student government. Was there something that happened uh, while you were in high school or after high school that helped you start facing or having those tough conversations with people? Well, I, I don't know that it that I really started having tough conversations with people about my identity until much later in life, after I'd already moved and and you know found a new home and a new chosen family. But I think for me, there's a few pivotal moments when I started to have those those internal conversations about mm-hmm. what do I really want out of life? Is this struggle to be exceptional, to be someone else's idea of who I'm supposed to be? Is that really what I want? Or is there a world out there where I can just be myself mm-hmm. and sometimes fail and sometimes slip up and that's okay and people will still appreciate me for that? Um, and those conversations you know, internally really started to happen Um, senior year of high school, freshman year of college, when I started challenging the idea of what I needed in a support system around me, the people that had been my friends since elementary and middle school probably weren't the best people to be around. They weren't the most affirming people. They weren't, you know, the most accepting people. Um, I had to do an overhaul of those friend groups. And when I went off to college, I was looking for that, you know, new environment. This is where I belong. I'm finally breaking free. And it turned out I went to a state school. I went to the University of Oregon. It was essentially an extension of my high school graduating class. And mm-hmm. so I didn't find a lot of those things that I was looking for. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, that's what caused me to pack two suitcases and move 3,500 miles away to a place I had never really been to. <laughs> what, so, so that place we're referring to, I believe, is Orlando, right? Yeah. So yep. what, what, uh, what, what brought, I mean, uh, was there anything particular that said, hey, Orlando, to, to you? Yeah, honestly, I didn't choose it. It wasn't an active choice. I was uh, I worked for Starbucks for about 12 years um, before my current job. I had a job at Starbucks when I was in college. And I was sitting in the back room, you know, taking my 10-minute break, eating a bagel that I had likely, you know, an expired bagel that I'd found in the refrigerator. Because <laughs> that's all that I could afford to eat at right. the time. And uh, my shift supervisor came in the back room and she she put the school newspaper in my hands. And she said, I thought of you when I saw this. And, you know, I'm expecting some article about something I'm passionate about. But I opened it and, and she was pointing to um, an ad for Performers Wanted at Disney. And mm. I thought, you know what? If there's a place where I belong, I bet that's it. Th- these are the things that I love to do. I love to perform. I loved music at the time. 
I'm just going to do it. I'm going to try it. So I called my grandmother and she flew me to San Francisco to audition for Disney. The, the funny story about that is that I actually thought it was a singing audition. I was hoping to double major in music in school. When I got there, they're like, sorry, this is a dance audition. And I thought, well, I've never taken a dance class before, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> we're going to roll with it. We're already here. Um, and I thought for sure I just bombed it. But a couple weeks later, I got a call and they said, we'd love for you to come and perform. And at the time, I was thinking probably Los Angeles, right? Um, yeah, you know, I, sure. I'm living in Oregon. LA is just down the road. Uh, and when they said Orlando, I thought, well, that's absolutely terrifying. But you know what? I'm never going to get what I want out of life. If I keep staying in my comfort zone, I'm just doing it. You're going to stay in the mm. same place you were. Yeah. That's interesting. Hey, just going back a little bit. So some of the stuff we were doing in high school, was, was it involved in the arts as far as with the acting or singing? Yeah, I did a lot of work in the arts in high school. I was a, um, I went to nationals a couple times for speech and debate. We also won the state theater competition with several of our shows. So we were, you know, it was a, um, a pretty big commitment, I would say at the time, because we were a fairly competitive arts and performance school. Um, and I loved doing it. I loved spending, you know, as much time away from home, diving into the things that I was most passionate about as I could. So you, you show up to Orlando with your two suitcases. Um, what was that like when you first arrived? Well, I have to take you back to that sure. time because <laughs> nothing could be more contrasting than Portland, Oregon to Orlando, Florida. So if you can picture it, it's August. And I hope that many of your listeners have at least, you know, taken a couple of trips to Portland. So you've got an idea of what Portland is yeah. in your head. Um, and it was exactly like you're imagining it. It was overcast. It was uh, maybe a little rainy. I had my little windbreaker on. I'm certain I had rain boots packed into my bag. <laughs> and I touched down in Orlando. And for those of you who've not spent time in Orlando, um, it's always really hot. And August especially is like, it's like the surface of the sun outside. <laughs> and on top of that, it's not quite like Los Angeles hot where, you know, it's dry and and feels really nice on your skin. It's like being in the shower with the sauna heat hot, turned right? on eyes. Sauna <laughs> hot, yeah. So you can imagine I stepped off the plane into this brand new environment. And the first thing I wanted to do is buy a ticket home. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. This is really like, this is a really big leap. Yeah. Um, but I also immediately, as soon as I touched down, I could feel how different it was. Wow. I could feel how multicultural yeah. it was. I could feel how inclusive it was. Mm -hmm. um, Orlando is, for those who don't know, Disney World and specifically Magic Kingdom is the number one international tourist destination in the United States. So you can imagine that you get it all here. And I had never experienced anything like that before. So while I was melting out of my skin, I also was already in love with just how different and big it was compared to what I'd grown up with. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Yeah. And if anyone who's been to, to Disney, I mean, I think it was the first time I went there as a kid, a kid who I grew up in South Bend, Indiana. And I remember going down there, you know, for a family trip, as, as a lot of people do. It may be to the age of 12 and seeing on the people's name tags, all the different places that they were from. Yeah. And just like the amount of diversity that I experienced uh, firsthand there as the age of 12 years old, growing up, you know, in a small town in Indiana, it really had, a, uh, it, it caused curiosity. It brought stories to life in a different way that I didn't realize that would happen when I was down there. So I, I like that you talked about though, that when you, when you, the, that feeling of like almost wanting to leave or not be there, but, 
but then, you know, then to kind of like swallow that or whatever you choose to call it. And then to almost kind of take an inventory of like, what am I feeling here? What's going on? Like something has changed. And I think that for myself, it is a reminder that sometimes there's that student, when you, when you go out on the journey, you come back to your home, you know, a changed person, right? And just the importance of that in, in so many different uh, fables and storytelling, you know, that, that that's just a common thing in human history that we go out and we find life and it changes us and we, we change them at the same time as well, too. Did you, so so here, so you're there. Did you start work right away or did you have some time to get settled or how, how'd that go? I had no time at all. I dove right in. They do <laughs> orientation really quickly. You know, we moved into our, our apartment complex, people that I'd never met before. And, you know, again, it was this sense of overwhelm but joy at the same time. It's, it's really hard to describe. It's like, um, you know, for anyone who's listened, if you've been so fortunate and privileged enough to have traveled to a different country, the first time you leave the United States and you're immersed into a culture that you don't recognize is really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's thrilling because you're, you know, you're a fish out of water. You're learning so many new things. Everything is new. Um, mm-hmm. And that's exactly how I felt. I dove straight into work. Everything was new. Again, I remember I had not ever taken a dance class before, so I spent really several years learning to perform in this environment, making new friends, meeting new people, struggling a lot of the time. Um, you know, there was a period of time where I was trying to pay back my my student loans, and I was on the edge of going into default, and I was working two jobs, and my my roommates had food stamps because we could barely keep food on the table. So there was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of hardship in that. But ultimately, being here has made me a stronger, better person because of the community I've been able to build. So, Brandon, earlier you talked about your chosen family. So now you're in Orlando. You're you know building your career at Disney. How easy or how difficult was it for you to make friends? And not only friends, but sort of the, those chosen family friends. Yeah, well, super easy, especially working at Disney. Um, you know, you hear the the expression "Disney gays." <laughs> it is sort of like a, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like a club. It's, they're here. It's sort of like, they're here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's sort of like a club. It's sort of like you know, you're you spend a lot of time together. Again, you know, for my last couple of years, I was cast at Magic Kingdom. I actually helped to close Spectra Magic Parade and open the Electric Light Parade. They told us it was coming for a single summer which is why they taught one cast the parade. And I think it's probably still there all these years later. So you really get really close with people. You go through rehearsals, you work 15 hours a day with the same people, you're cast with the same group of people doing the same show all the time, and you become really close. So for me, you know, it really was the first venture into understanding what the potential for Chosen Family could be. Mm. For the first time, did you feel like maybe that things were being mirrored with other people that you hadn't experienced before within the queer community at all? Yeah, you know, what I found fascinating, and I found myself in awe of consistently, was how many people were able to be authentically themselves in this space that had not been able to do that back home. I Mm. thought about all the queer people of color that I met, um, you know, not just at Disney, but in the city of Orlando. I, I went to Pulse nightclub was one of the first clubs I ever went to in central Florida. And to be in that space, to be in spaces like that with other queer people, with other queer people of color from different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different parts of the world that were finally able to find a space to be authentically themselves was incredibly empowering. Um, and I felt mm-hmm. like I spent, you know, several years just gleaning 
the sort of hope and optimism that others were were radiating because I had such a, a shortage of that in my childhood experience. Brandon, was was Pulse really the first gay bar, big, large gay bar that you ever went to? Uh, no, it was not the first gay bar I went to. There was this <laughs> this club called The Escape in downtown Portland that I used to sneak off to in high school. Sorry <laughs> if my dad is going to end up listening to this, but um, <laughs> I used to say I was going to my best friend's house and we would get all dressed up in our high school best and go to this under 18 like juice bar club. Um, so that was really my first experience with clubbing, but but moving away and going to a place like Pulse was really my first foray into being an adult mm. queer person mm. and being in a space where I could really just be whoever I wanted to be. I wasn't worried that you know my dad would find out or or worried that I would have to look over my shoulder, but I could just be who I wanted to be. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting that you say it that way. So so many of us, you know, queer folks, we bars and nightclubs were for such a long time that escape that place where you could finally not worry about you know anybody seeing you or paying attention to you where you were able to really authentically be yourself and i think it's it is interesting now that i feel like some of that shift is going away which in many ways is great and you know other ways it's sort of sad to see some of the bars leave gay bars are a really important part of not only our history, but our culture and a way yeah. to really facilitate and bring people together and is really the foundation of the community. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, think about think about what young queer people have experienced over time. And, and certainly things have improved and we have a lot of room left for improvement. But think about the spaces that are safe for our peers that are yeah. not part of our community, right? They could yeah. go to school and feel safe. Yeah. They could go home and feel safe. Yeah. They could go to church and feel safe. And those spaces weren't safe for people like me. I didn't feel safe at home. I didn't feel safe at school. I didn't feel safe at church. I might have put on a brave face mm. and sure. people would see me smiling in the hallways and, and overachieving and excelling like they expected me to. But at the end of the day, I didn't feel safe being me, authentically mm. me. And the only spaces that our community has had for much of its history are the ones we carve out for ourselves. And yep. and for us, that became the bar and nightclub scene. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely true. I do also draw similarities that, you know, you being in that, that parade that you recreated time and time, I mean, like, every time you're doing it, almost like the same thing with theater, you've got a, a new audience and you want it to be the best experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Seeing when people, whoever you are, LGBTQIA, uh, cisgendered, straight, when we all get to create a safe place for us to use our gifts and our talents, I, I see time and time again how the world is a better place, right? And so sometimes, unfortunately, like for, for queer people, it's been very segmented where it's just this, this one, these two hours in the evening where we get to be who we are, where, it, where it's okay, right? Whether it's the bar or on stage at the theater. But then now what I've seen now is with, with a lot of the work that people have done, and like you said earlier, there's still a long ways to go, but being able to be fully authentic and be who you are at all, all times, that is, um, that is infinite joy, joy and like a beautiful thing. And I think we're all so much better when that, when that gets to happen for, for, for the whole world. That's right. Well, think about what is possible yes. when all of us have room to thrive. 
right? And I I think about the fallacy that that holds people back, that holds our society back very frequently, which is this idea that that power is finite, that success Mm -hmm. is finite, that in order for someone else to be lifted up, you have to press yourself down, um, that Mm -hmm. you have to cede power in order for someone else to rise. But when we break free of that idea that everything around us is scarce, and instead, we, we reinvent yeah. this idea that actually success and, and power and joy and happiness are abundant. It's contagious. And, yeah. and, and contagious. And we are all better off when we share it with other people. Anything is possible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what I feel like, uh, you know, this the new generation of queer people, you know, coming up, that's how they see things. That's how they see the world is that really anything is possible. I know there's, you know, for myself personally, I could look back and and remember like moments in time as a young queer person, you know, looking and seeing, uh, you know, certain things happening when, like when President Obama back in 2012 came out and said marriage equality should be, it should be legal. Anybody, you know, uh, same-sex couples should be able to get married. To have the leader of the free world say that on national television, I, I mean, it was it was a life-changing experience. And yeah. I think when you open you open up and you're having those conversations and those those experiences are happening, you're right. Like anything, anything is possible, and that's how really we start creating the change in the world. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and that's what I was looking for when I moved 3,500 miles away from home was a place where, you know, people didn't treat me like I had to overcome my identity, but rather Mm -hmm. that my identity allowed me to thrive because it's what made me special. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I guess building on that, and I know that this is probably a, a much larger conversation to have, but, you know, so being a part of the community, the LGBTQI community, have you ever felt any discrimination within the community? Yeah, sure. And I, I think when we talk about the the things that we have left to do, that's some of the work that we've got to do. The LGBTQ community is large. It's diverse. It's complex. It's not monolithic. People live different lived experiences. They come from different parts of the country. They have different family situations, different backgrounds. And for that reason, we face many of the same issues that every other community faces, right? I've, I've definitely felt instances of racism inside of our community. I've, you know, felt instances of misogyny inside our community where we have this idea of, of how, you know, women are supposed to be. And then we have some distorted view of masculinity and femininity. And you see it show up on, on dating apps. You go on Grindr and you see no fats, no femmes, no Asians, right? You got all these things yep. that we're decomposing and processing inside the community. And at the end of the day, much of that comes from the internalized hate that we've just built in over the years, over the decades, over the generations. And the only way we begin to unpack that is if we have really tough conversations about it, if we're honest about it, and if we're willing to see the world through a new, brighter, bigger, more inclusive lens. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that Sometimes in our goals for, for, for better or improvements, what I like is being able to have conversations like this where I can, where we can talk about this in a safe way to be like, oh yeah, I've made mistakes and I have, you know, this is what I, what you, you've helped me learn about myself or ways of improvement. And, and, and that continues as I've found is putting myself in these uncomfortable, not, not uncomfortable, but just 
places where maybe my my ego tells me, oh, this is uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it is uncomfortable, but we're going to learn. So that's exciting, right? On the other side of this, this uncomfortability is is growth and an expansion for all and and for a better world. At least I, that's what that's been my personal experience with with, with uh, stuff in my life, at least. Yeah, you know, I, I wish that we allowed each other more space and more grace to do that. I think one yeah. of this one of the challenges we face right now is we live in a primarily social world, specifically social media. Um, and through algorithms and our own decision-making processes, we can build little silos and ecosystems where nobody ever challenges our worldview. Uh, everything we see affirms us. Everything we see delivers instant gratification that, that you know, the way we view the world, the way we move throughout the world is the only right way to do it. And that doesn't really allow people a ton of space to make mistakes to have tough conversations with people who have different lived experiences from them and to grow from those things. So one of the things that I've challenged myself over the last year or two and into the future is to allow people more space and more grace to learn with me and then to allow mm-hmm. myself the same. Yeah, Bryn, you you talk about, I know some of the work you do, um, from what I've learned from you is, is holding dignity for people in this process as well too with that grace. We have to, we have to. I, I mean, I I believe at my core, that everyone deserves dignity and respect, that that's a core tenet of how we should live our lives. It's how we should move throughout the world. I don't always live up to that expectation for myself. Um, I, you know, I make mistakes and I fall short too, but I think we run into serious problems when we are able to see other people as less than. And so it is incumbent upon all of us to treat everyone with a level of dignity and respect that they deserve, um, even when it's really challenging. And sometimes it is really, really challenging to do that. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. But I just believe that people deserve dignity and respect. And I, I try to move throughout the world with that as my frame of mind. Brandon, when you're, when, if someone is in uh, that situation, that uncomfortable situation where they have to have that conversation with someone, is there any advice or any tips that you would maybe give someone to be able to approach that uh, conversation with that person in a dignified way? Sure. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first thing is that I believe in being honest with people. Uh, we had a, a saying when I was still with Starbucks, it was clear is kind, unclear yeah. is unkind. Yeah. Uh, and so I try to be as clear as I can with the people around me, that people understand where I'm coming from, that people understand when, you know, when they've maybe said or done something that didn't sit well with me. Mm. And also to be clear, when I know that I've done something, I can feel it. I can just feel it in the way we're interacting with each other, that I've done something that it doesn't sit well with the yeah. other person. I'm clear about that yeah, in saying, you know, hey, I need you to call me out. I feel like I said something uncomfortable and I'd love for you to help guide me through that process. And I think the other thing that comes to mind is that everything is about trust and relationship building. You can't barrel into a conversation. This is where things like Twitter and the Facebook comment section just drive me absolutely crazy. <laughs> is that you can't barrel into a conversation with someone that you know nothing about that you've never interacted with and then expect to beat them over the head with your worldview and change their mind. It's not going to work. The times when we actually have an impact on people are when we've taken the time to build a real meaningful relationship with them. Mm -hmm. One that's built on trust so that when I say things like, you know, I think about my dad who I disagree with on most everything, 
But when I say things like, dad, when you say that, that's insensitive and it's hurtful to people, he knows it's not coming from a place of malice. He doesn't immediately put up his walls because we've spent a long time having those conversations. Mm -hmm. And we've spent a long time affirming and loving each other and treating each other with dignity and respect so that when it comes to that moment, it's not seen as personal or hurtful. And I know for, and I, you, you, I can just, I love when people use words that are very visual, barreling in. I mean, that is, is just, I think we can all have felt that, or at least I know I've felt that. And I, and I know yeah, that you're when I'm imagining, bar- you're imagining the Twitter avatar right now of the person, yes. you know who yep. they are, who yep. jumps into the comments and, you know, they take it from a one to a 13 in about 10 seconds. <laughs> yes. I wanted to talk to you also, Brandon, um, about your friends, Drew and Juan. Uh, how, how did you guys meet? So I met Drew in 2014. We we actually met on a blind date. Well, sort of half blind because like any good millennial gay, I had totally Instagram stalked him. I had named our <laughs> children. It was, you know, all the stuff. But we were definitely getting married. Um, and I, I remember it vividly because I'm also inherently an introvert. So it takes me a lot of time to work up to specifically one-on-one interactions. I get nervous. My hands get clammy. You can put me on stage in front of 10,000 people and that's fine, but sit me across the table from someone and I get really nervous. Yeah. So I had to work myself up to this situation. And I remember, um, you know, standing there in front of my mirror in my bedroom, like, okay, he's going to ask you what your favorite color is. The answer is green. He's going to ask you what your favorite (laughs) food is. The answer is tacos. Like you're ready for this. You got this. Um, And so I I pulled up to PF Chang's, which was also just, super rich because uh, I hated Chinese food at the time. So I was like, everything <laughs> everything that makes me nervous about this is, is put in place. And I remember seeing him sitting there waiting for our table. We ordered a drink. We were sipping on our cocktails. And he said, um, okay, I have a question for you. And I thought, well, this is what I've been preparing for. It's why I was standing in front of the mirror all night. Uh, and he said, what are your thoughts on the for-profit healthcare industry and its impact on American consumers? <laughs> and I thought, somehow the answer green doesn't seem to fit here. But, um, but I had had you know, part of my little martini glass. And so I told him how I felt about predatory for-profit healthcare in America and, you know, how detrimental it is to people and, you know, all of that. I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, because I work for an insurance company, so I just wasn't sure where this was going to (laughs) go. But to be honest, that sort of defined our friendship that, that came to define who we were. I don't have to tell you, we didn't get married. We did not have children, um, which is totally fine because we were destined to be the best of friends. And it almost immediately we became attached at the hip. We went everywhere together. We did everything together. And he was the first person in my life that in a really positive way challenged me. Mm. And he challenged me to, to understand why I believe the things I believe. He challenged me to show up authentically in spaces. He's honestly the first person who taught me that it was okay to love me for me. Mm. And I had never experienced that before. It was, yeah. it was at the same time unnerving and uh, giving me anxiety. It, it was so thrilling because here was this guy who was, you know, racially intersectional, queer, uh, liked anime and Lady Gaga. And, you know, he just, he was this complex being 
who was proud of every ounce of himself. And I didn't know what that meant or felt like, but I wanted to be a part of that too. Mm -hmm. And he took me on that journey. What a rich experience that is too. Yeah, it uh, truly, um, you know, they, I, I think I said at one point that once in a lifetime, you meet certain kinds of people that just change the way you live your life. They shift mm-hmm. the earth on its axis. And, and Drew was that person for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really special. Who you are today, who we're talking to today that, you know, for people listening that as we grow and we, and we, and we, we become who we are and we continue to become who we're becoming to allow space for those relationships to, to, you know, mm-hmm. to find that, find, you know, that person or persons. And, um, and my experience has been that sometimes that person, and then a different person comes like a few years later that, that then teaches me other things. Um, if I'm open to, to, to that ex- experience, can you give us a little bit more just as far as like, wh- what year was this when you guys met? Yeah. So we met in 2014 and that was just such a wild year. <laughs> We used to refer to it as like crazy 2014. And I think it's because we were just living. For the first time in my life, I was really just living. Living authentically, living out loud, doing everything I wanted to do, being everywhere I wanted to be. We we really did. We did everything that we wanted Mm -hmm. to do. And then in 2015, um, Drew met Juan. And I remember him being very cagey about meeting Juan. He would sometimes drop into conversation that he had met this guy and that they, you know, they were texting. It was very casual. He was trying to downplay it. But mm-hmm. I could tell by the frequency with which he brought Juan into the conversation that there was something happening there, right? And then I met Juan. And like any good best friend, I was incredibly skeptical. And I did all the things you're supposed to do. I made up nicknames for him. I gave him uh, the wrong address to a restaurant one time just to see if he would really show up. <laughs> I, was, I wanted to put this guy through the ringer because if you're going to be with my best friend, then you better be good enough for him, mm. right? And, and the way that Drew had changed my life I didn't want him to expel that energy on anyone who I didn't think deserved it. Now, he thought everybody deserved that and treated everyone as if they were the the greatest thing since sliced bread. The truth is that Juan really was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And they were essentially the same person. I remember being in Drew's apartment one time when he and Juan were sitting on the couch. The apartment was full of people. We had this little these little studio apartments next to each other, maybe like five or six hundred square feet, but he had somehow managed to pack like a dozen people in there. And the music was loud and the drinks were flowing. And I remember just sitting at the bar and looking over at the two of them on the couch. And it was like nothing I had ever seen before. Hmm. They were two queer people of color that seemingly embodied one energy. It was like there was only one person in the space that they were both inhabiting. They were just so in love with each other that it radiated around them. And you couldn't help but be in love with the world when you were with them. And so Juan, honestly, was was maybe the best thing that happened to our group of friends because he just added that one extra component. You know when you're making a dish mm-hmm. and it's missing that something and you find the right spice and you add it and it's, yeah. you know, it's magical? That was Juan. Yeah. And so we really became the three musketeers. We traveled everywhere. Uh, we went on a road trip to New Orleans that I remember very distinctly. And uh, I remember getting home and Drew, you know, pulling the car up to our apartment complex and saying, 
you know you've really found best friends when you can travel with them without wanting to fight each other over where to eat dinner. <laughs> and it's it's so true that we could we could go anywhere, we could do anything together and never miss a beat. Uh, and I'm just so grateful and fortunate to have had those experiences. When you were saying, like, when you first met Juan and, you know, how protective you were of Drew, it really, you know, it sort of reinforces the fact that how important, you know, our friends are, uh, our chosen family, you know, is, I feel like, I don't know, every time I've, like, especially when I first uh, met Jeff and started meeting his friends, I remember you know, those experiences with, uh, you know, his friends sort of eyeing me up, making sure that, you know, I was okay to be with him. I, I, mm -hmm. I feel like that happens. It's just like a common thread that you see through our community. It's because we love each other so much. We care about, you know, each other so much that we want to make sure that, you know, our friends have the best of the best. And it it's a, a special thing when, like you said, sort of that that right person comes into the fold, into the group, and only adds more uh, richness to the friendships and to that circle of people. So that's a, a a really it's a really special special thing when that happens. Yeah. It is, yeah. And, and you know, Drew had dated other people. You know, we'd been friends for a couple, or I guess over a year at that point. He'd gone on dates, he'd had little flings here and there, and, you know, it was the same. It was always me being pretty protective, me being very incredulous, me trying to accept that person, but knowing that they're just not right for my best friend and us going on this journey. And then when he, you know, he finally says, ah, I don't think it's going to work out, you know, you don't say I told you so, you offer a hug, but in your mind, you're thinking, I could have told you that. Um, yeah. But this, this, this was not that experience. This was different. This was... Uh, once again, although I was trying to protect my brother, really my brother, he was teaching me. And I think what I learned from Drew and Juan was that I deserved love too. Mm, and that's something uh, that I really struggled with as a kid. I struggled yeah. with the idea of being a queer person of color, that being queer meant I didn't deserve to fall in love because it was something that was wrong that being yeah. a person of color meant I would never be accepted inside of our community because I didn't yeah. fit the standard of what beautiful is inside the queer community. Drew and Juan changed that for me. Mm. For the first time in my life, I saw what they had and I believed I deserved that. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I think all of us can relate to that. Uh, you know, Anthony and I dated when we were 25, 26 years old. And and it, you know, I dated other people off and on and I was in and out of the, and out of the closet and stuff like that. And 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 I had never really felt like someone really loved me the way that Anthony loved me, mm -hmm. and and so I, it it actually got to the point where I I couldn't be around that because I wasn't able to love myself yet. So we separated for you know we 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 went apart for ten years until you know I finally began to love myself, and then you know we're, we're together today. But um, I just I felt so uncomfortable being around that love in those early years. Yeah, it's almost like you're standing in the sun. Yeah, and. You know, you're not totally sure where the journey is taking you. It's a little uncomfortable, yeah. but at the end of the day, it's beautiful. Yeah. And and Drew and Juan were really the first time that I had ever seen it up close. Yeah, mm. yeah. And and the fact that you can, and I think it's also it's special that we can share that with other people. You don't necessarily have to have been there, but we can all sit here and nod our heads and be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, this all makes sense." You know. So thank you for sharing that that part of your story.
I'm kind of, I'm just kind of pause for a second because we know what happened. We, I, we, we, we know that you guys went to Pulse on that that night, and and a, and a horrible tragedy took place. I don't know, honestly, like how to go from where we were in this conversation to to, to that night. And I'm just going to say that out loud right now. Um, yeah. Well, I think I, I listen. I appreciate you naming that because that's the real tragedy of what happened on June 12th of 2016 is how do you go from what we just talked about to the absolute worst nightmare? Yeah. Yeah. And the way you get there is by helping people understand what the before looked like, what that space was meant to represent and, and why we can't ever let it happen again. So Mm -hmm. if you'll allow me, I want to take you back to June 11th. Yeah, we often refer to June 11th of 2016 as the last normal day because everything about it was normal. I had just been through kind of a messy breakup and I had spent all week dragging Drew and Juan through my personal drama, forcing them to drink champagne with me every night, even though they had to work the next day. You know, the routine of friends going through that situation. I think we probably ate ice cream or cake for at least two meals a day for the entire week. I remember waking up to um, piles of laundry. It was a Saturday, so my baskets were overflowing with socks and underwear. We also, Drew and I, had started a, a race to see who could finish Star Trek The Next Generation first. <laughs> yes. Go on Netflix and watch them all from the beginning and who can get to the end, right? So I thought this is a great opportunity for me to get caught up. I'm nursing my champagne hangover and Drew and Juan were going to spend the day at SeaWorld on a date. And so I thought this is great. I'm going to get a few episodes ahead. And I did. I folded laundry. I watched TV. I remember on at least one occasion, Drew and Juan had a new selfie that popped up on my Facebook feed. And for those who are listening, get if you get a chance, uh, definitely go and, and look at their their pictures are still on Instagram. Um, they were almost offensively photogenic, like <laughs> really cute, the kind of cute where you go out and people forget that you're even there because the two of them are just so cute that everyone wants to talk to them. And so of course, when their photo comes up on Facebook, I want to angrily like it because I'm being supportive, but I'm also like, here I am looking like a slob on, on laundry day. And um, as the day wound to a close, we did the most normal thing. I I texted my best friends and I asked them if they wanted to go to the club and get a drink. I remember them getting to my place a little bit later than usual. We didn't really like to get to the club much past midnight, but for some reason, you know, they had a long day and, and so they were running late. I also remember they almost never allowed me to play bartender. And I think it's because I have a really strong pour. <laughs> but I think they also they also kind of understood and recognized what I was dealing with that week. So they were like, whatever, if it, you know, if it calms him down to stand by the cocktail shaker, then let him have the shaker. <laughs> uh, we gathered around the island and we did what we always did. It was very normal. We listened to music. We laughed about inside jokes. We had just finished a staycation with each other the weekend before. And so we were, you know, laughing and joking about our experiences. And then when it came time to decide where to go, we just picked the club that was closest. And we had Mm -hmm. been there hundreds of times. Um, So we, you know, it was not foreign to us, but we just typed into Uber, which one was closest and it was Pulse. Mm -hmm. When we pulled up to the club, it was normal in every way. 
The line was fairly long outside. The same drag queen that was always at the front door was there to take my money. Um, there was a, a beaded doorway that you sort of had to part to go into the dark club. And we went inside. I remember it being packed, absolutely packed. I had seen it busy. I don't know if I had seen it bursting at the seams quite like that. I remember the music being really loud, the crowd being really joyous. I talked about safe spaces and, and Pulse was that. Yeah. Pulse was the place that embodied all the things that I talked about with Drew and Juan was there in that space because it wasn't just the three of us who felt that, that we could be ourselves, be authentic. It was everybody. Yeah. It was the place where I could finally wear those skinniest pair of jeans without you know, <laughs> being afraid that somebody would call me a faggot, to be honest. Yeah. It was the place where I could hold hands with someone without yeah. looking over my shoulder for the first time. Pulse was our home. And so that night we navigated, we could have navigated it with our eyes closed. We made our way through the crowd to the back to the same bartender we always went to, ordered the same drinks we always ordered. I think she could see in my eyes that I needed a double because she made it a little stronger than normal. <laughs> um, I remember dancing and, and feeling so free that all of the weight of the world would melt off there in the middle of the dance floor underneath this huge disco ball that would spin where we were just us. Mm. And no matter what was happening outside, no matter all the drama I was going through personally, I could just be me in that space. And, and it's exactly what I needed that night. I remember Drew had a master's degree in clinical psychology and when he had a drink or five or six, he would offer free therapy sessions. And uh, that night he had one in store. I think he had been working on it for several hours. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he grabbed my hand and he led us outside onto the patio. It was warm. It was summer. Um, so it was warm outside. The stars were in the sky. And he started talking about love. He started talking mm -hmm. about community. He talked about how frequently we allow the little things to get in the way of how much we care about each other. He started talking about how our own fears of inadequacy drive us away from the people that love us the most because we're afraid they will see us as not enough. And he had this way, he had these really long gangly arms and he would drape one over your shoulder when he was about to make his point. He draped an arm over my shoulder and he said, you know what I wish we did more of is tell each other that we love each other. Yeah. Hmm. And for me, that encapsulated that space. It encapsulated that night. It encapsulated our friendship. I know he was talking about my recent breakup <laughs> and he was trying to warm yeah. my heart a little bit. But I also knew he was talking about something much bigger than that. Yeah. That in those words, he was sharing with me how much he appreciated the chosen family that we had created mm -hmm. and how he wished that other people would spend a little more time creating chosen family like ours. Yeah. I remember us wrapping that conversation. We went back inside. We continued to dance. Uh, I remember us passing the manager of Pulse at the time, Brian, and... It, it was like clockwork. And we passed him at the same time every, every night mm. at the same spot. And he would mm. always be carrying a, a tray full of fireball shots. It's like, <laughs> I don't know how he found us, how he sought us out. But every time he would approach us with these fireball shots, 
and he would say, you guys want a shot? And simultaneously, Drew would say yes. I would say no, because Fireball is absolutely vile. <laughs> and of course, Drew always won. So we would always end up taking a Fireball shot. And we did that night. I distinctly remember thinking this is a terrible idea. I don't want a shot of Fireball. But before you know it, it's down the hatch. I remember just before two o'clock in the morning, having this realization that we were really too old to be closing the club. <laughs> we needed to go home. We, our feet were tired. You know, we were, we needed to go home. And so we decided that um, once I had an opportunity to go to the bathroom, we would call an Uber. I stepped into the bathroom around two o'clock in the morning. And I can tell you that for whatever reason, Everything about the next few moments are the most vivid memories I have of that night. I remember above the urinal, there was a colorful poster with some of the painted faces of, of our familiar drag queens on it. Mm -hmm. They were so happy and joyful. Mm -hmm. I remember stepping over to the sink. I remember that on the edge, on the rim of the sink was this half-empty plastic cup that sort of had a mash of alcohol and lime in the bottom. And it looked like it might fall off if someone didn't move it. I remember how cold the water is coming out of the faucet. And I distinctly remember the first sound of gunshots. I remember feeling confused. I remember conferring with the other person in the bathroom with me it seemed like maybe it was a music malfunction. It, it sort of syncopated with the rhythm of the music in the club. And then I remember about a dozen people coming into the bathroom with us and they looked like they had seen the purest form of hell. And it was at that moment the second round of gunshots started. And this time it was this unrelenting bang, bang, bang. It was so loud that you could feel it. And then there was panic. There was this debate in the room about whether or not we should try to hide or run. And then the realization that we were in a men's only restroom, that there were no stalls to hide in, that there were only urinals and us crouched against the wall. Our bodies were like stationary targets in that moment. There was this smell of blood and smoke that came into the bathroom that I feel at times I can still smell when I'm sleeping. And then I remember the decision to just run and locking arms with about a dozen people that I had never seen before. I didn't know, I didn't know their names, I didn't know their faces, just running. There was a, a sort of cloud in the club at that point that was probably a mix of the smoke machine and gunfire. And I remember telling myself, don't look left into the dance floor, because whatever you see will never be able to forget. I remember there was a sliver of light in the back of the room from a door that I had never seen before. I didn't even know it opened and willing myself to just keep running one foot in front of the other, don't look left. I remember the door swinging open. I was sure I was gonna die. I had told myself that I would never get to say goodbye to my parents. 
And there I was, outside, underneath the stars, disoriented, chaos everywhere. People were running from the building, screaming for help. There was blood. But I was alive. I remember making my way down the sidewalk. The police started to arrive. They had uh, assault weapons strapped on with bulletproof vests. And then there was a moment where I was on the sidewalk outside the club, this, this relentless bang, bang, bang in the background. And it was like I hit a wall. Like there was a physical barrier on the sidewalk. I hit this wall and I collapsed to the ground. And someone's tugging at my arm, telling me we've got to go, we've got to go. And I looked up at them and the only words that I could get out of my mouth were they are still in there. And I think although it took me some time to really learn what happened in that club, that was the moment that I already knew. still difficult to talk about. I think it's just so important, although painful, to share, because it's so easy for us to write these things off as inevitable. It's so easy for us to, to see it scrolling on the bottom of the CNN screen and turn it off and go be with our families and our friends. It's so easy when it's someone else's community to pretend like it could never happen to you. But the truth is that inside the LGBTQ community, this is what we've always been afraid of. That showing up authentically, that being ourselves might cost us our lives. And so my hope is not that by sharing the story that I scare people into going back into the closet, but rather that we talk about after such great tragedy and painful loss, how the community decided to come together to embody the spirit that Drew had carried with him, to lift each other up, to insist that the tragedy actually brought us closer together rather than tear us apart. for me the day that you know the morning after everything happened um i i mean i can vividly remember that morning for myself where i was where i found out uh that this happened and that night there was a uh, i was in chicago at the time and um there was a vigil that was going to be held outside of the community center and it was put together by the center obviously fairly quick. They didn't know how many people would come. And originally, they were just going to do it right uh, inside in the lobby of the community center. And very quickly, the massive a number of people that showed up pushed out. They had to move it outside 
onto the street and the street the police showed up and they had to barricade the streets and close the street down because there were just hundreds and hundreds of people that showed up and there was a you know for us uh you know in chicago you know being not even necessarily having any connection to anybody in orlando that what you said brandon was right it, that it was like our our greatest fear you know, came to life. It was staring us in the face. And uh, I mean, for myself, I remember just being there surrounded by strangers holding candles and everybody in tears, not knowing what to do. And uh, when that was over... We, it's, it was almost like, I don't know, it was like, like the unspoken truth, you know, we or just like an unspoken thing to do next. We went to the bars and everybody came, everybody went in and it was, it wasn't, you know, business as usual because there was this, this heaviness in the air that night. And I remember talking with my friends thinking, can you even imagine? I can't even imagine sitting being who you are being you doing your thing like we we've all done this for years and years and years and years and for it to be disrupted like that mm-hmm. so you're you're right the i mean the ripple for within the community i mean it was immediate it was it happened right away where everyone I shouldn't say everyone but so many people within the community all around the country all around the world felt the impact of what happened in that club that night. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think what's important to remember is bringing it back to the way we talked about Pulse in the beginning of this discussion. Yes. Pulse embodied the safest of spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that was the only place where we could be ourselves. Right. Right. That was the place that all of us had, had left home looking for. You said it. You went to Disney and noted how many people were from different parts of the country and different parts of the world. This place had become an oasis for us. Mm-hmm. And LGBTQ people across this country and across the globe know what that feels like. Yep. And for someone to invade a space like Pulse meant they invaded all of our spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what I found so powerful in the immediate aftermath of the shooting was that rather than be swallowed up by that, because the intent of, the, of an act like that is to make you afraid. It is to send you back into the closet. It is to make you question whether or not you should be authentically yourself. Right. But instead of, of choosing to succumb to that, our community decided to be defiant, as we always have. Yeah. yeah. And insist that we deserve better than what happened in that club. Uh, and for me, that has become the single most defining and beautiful part of mm. of the tragedy. And and to build on what you just said, Brandon, and also Anthony as well, is that, you know, someone who's listening who, who doesn't necessarily identify as, as queer, you know, think about that sacred space, whether it's, a, whether you go to light a candle at church or wherever that place is for you, where you kind of feel like you connect with, with God, the universe, a holy space, whatever, whatever the word is, it makes sense to you that resonates with your soul. That's what that felt like, you know, when this took place inside of that this was our, our holy place that, that you know that we're and, and what I mean by that is this you talked about you being out there dancing and being in your skinny jeans and just being all of who and what you were created to be and those things those places will continue to happen and we continue to create those spaces because that 
that's what we do, you know? Yeah, that's right. Brandon, just kind of going back to, to sort of talk through, you know, what happened, you know, after uh, that night at Pulse. So in the immediate after, you know, all of that, uh, everything that had happened, where did you go? Yeah, well, I, I think I can paint a picture of the timeline for you. After leaving the club, police directed us to go away from the area. So we moved down the street toward the hospital. That didn't end up being a very safe place to be. So we moved further down to a 7-Eleven parking lot that's that's about a half a mile from Pulse. Mm-hmm. And we essentially set up base camp in the parking lot. That's where we started to make phone calls. We were charging phones. We woke several friends up who came and brought food and 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 you know were working shifts trying to get information. Mm-hmm. At that point, Drew and Juan were still missing. I was doing the thing that all of you can probably imagine doing. I was calling them over and over yeah. and over again, every time a little bit more desperate than the last one. Uh, I remember posting on Facebook that there had been a shooting inside the club, that I was out safe, but that I could not find Drew and Juan. Please give me any information that you have. Drew's mom saw the post and reached out to me. I asked her to to make her way to Orlando. She said, is it a, I should come tomorrow emergency or you think I should be there right now? And I said, I, I really think you need to get here right now. From there, Drew's mom waited at the emergency room. She thought for sure that if she would learn any information, it would be there. She waited outside that emergency room all night. She went home, I think, on Monday morning briefly. But in the meantime, on Sunday afternoon, we finally left for my apartment. We left our 7-Eleven base camp and went back to my place. And we sort of set up base camp there. There were people coming and going all day with food and doing laundry and, and all of that. I was sort of in a blur. At this point, I still had not slept at all. And I remember the TV was on in the background with local news and they just kept adding names to the list. Um, The number was 10, it was a dozen, it was 25. And they just kept adding, kept adding until they hit 49. We found out about Juan first because someone else saw him being removed from the club on a stretcher. He was unsure if Juan was alive, if he was, you know, critically wounded. All he knew was that he was on a stretcher. I got a hold of Juan's family and sent a whole bunch of frantic messages to his sister on Facebook asking for her to call me. She called me and she just kept saying over and over again, please tell me he wasn't there. And didn't have a lot of words to say to her. The only thing I could say in response was, I am so sorry. Mm. But you have to go and find your brother. I don't know where he is. I don't know what hospital they took him to, but you need to find him. I remember his mom wailing in the background. Mm -hmm. Juan was the baby of the family. So they went searching for him. They eventually found him. He had been moved into emergency surgery and died on the operating table. I believe Juan had been shot 10 times.
that was the first time in my life that I had some sort of understanding of what the word heartbreak means. Mm. So I feel like heartbreak is sort of a cliche, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> People go through a bad breakup <laughs> and it's, oh, I'm heartbroken, right? Yeah. This was heartbreak. Yeah. It's the kind of pain that is not just emotional. It's, it's so painful that you feel it physically. Yeah. And you genuinely question whether or not you will die. So I processed that. I drank a lot of alcohol that night. (laughs) I went to bed. I woke up Monday morning. We still had not heard news of Drew. Uh, His mother was at the facility that they had set up for families to wait for information. Mm -hmm. There they had local police, the mayor, the FBI, and they would come and bring updates to the family. By this time, Drew's mother had gone viral for a video of her on, I think, ABC Nightly News asking for information about her son. Yeah. So everybody knew that we were looking for Drew. And there were name after name after name being added to this list. And she was growing more and more frustrated with not hearing any information. And she went into the room with these law enforcement officials. She said, you've seen my face everywhere. You know who I'm looking for. You say you've identified everyone in that club. Where is my son? And the FBI agent looked at her with a very straight, deadpan face and said, he's dead. And so in the most casual, off-the-cuff way, we learned that Drew had never made it off the dance floor. That he died after being shot nine times. And so the truth is that I wanted to disappear at that point. Mm -hmm. I I had been thinking at that time that maybe he was somewhere, unidentified in a hospital bed, that he was just waiting for us to rescue him. And I had been preparing myself for what the conversation with him might look like about how he was going to live without one. And so that was, that was the closure that we got. And I remember thinking maybe I would just go to bed and never wake up. And that that might be the better outcome for me Mm. than having to navigate a world without the person who taught me to love myself. Yeah. But that didn't last very long (laughs) because (laughs) I'm a stubborn person. (laughs) And. I don't particularly like people speaking on my behalf. I have words I can use on my own. (laughs) So I made the mistake of turning on cable news for the first time. Drew had gifted me this, uh, one of those satellites you stick in the window. Mm -hmm. So you could like get some channels for free, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I turned on cable news for the first time. I had not listened to what the world was saying. I had no idea what people were talking about. 
So the way that everyone else was processing a terrorist attack and, you know, the Muslim community and Donald Trump's tweets and Hillary Clinton's campaign and all of that was not in my world. Mm. I describe it like being in the center of a hurricane. Mm. In your four foot radius, it's quite calm. You're in the eye of a hurricane, but mm -hmm. you can see the world moving like a bullet train around you. Mm. Yeah. So that's where I was. I was in this space. I was really having trouble digesting how the world was processing our tragedy. And I flip on the news. It happens to be Fox News. So you know how that went. Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they were talking about us. They were talking about Orlando. They were talking about Pulse. And it was not a single person on that screen looked like me. Mm. Not a single person on that screen was talking about the way that Drew and Juan lived, only how they died. Mm. And I was furious about it. Mm. Because in that moment, I understood what so many communities come to learn when they're the center of a tragedy. That if you let someone else narrate your story, you will be erased from it. Mm. They weren't talking about the lines of gay men wrapped around the local LGBT center trying to donate blood who are being turned away mm. because it's against the law. They weren't talking about the undocumented family members who wanted to get mental and physical health resources after their children had been shot and killed in a nightclub but were afraid to because the gatekeepers to care were the FBI and they were afraid they would be deported. They weren't talking about us. They were talking about everything from their own perspectives. And so I, I decided in that moment that although it would be scary, although it was nothing like what I was doing at the time, I was a store manager at Starbucks. <laughs> I had worked for five years as a dancer at Disney. Although it had nothing to do with what I was doing professionally, that I had to tell their stories. Mm. Because if I didn't, no one would. And then they would be two of 49 faceless victims until the end of time. Yeah. So I started to share my story a little bit. I shared it with President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. I shared it with Secretary Clinton. I, I shared it with anyone who would listen. Mm. About six days after the shooting, we'd already held a funeral service for one. And we were getting ready for Drew's memorial service. I remember there was a debate about where to host it because we wanted a space where everyone could feel welcome. His family, his extended family is religious. So we knew that we would likely have it in a, a church of some sort. But we wanted there to be at least enough physical space that everyone could have a seat. Mm -hmm. So we settled on this beautiful cathedral in downtown Orlando. It's, it's absolutely stunning. And we thought, well, there are seats for about 800 people. That means everyone can have one if they want one. We got to the church that day, and it was packed. It was standing room only. There were over 1,000 people in that church. And it's because that's who Drew really was. He, he was the one who brought us all together like that. It was fascinating to me because I, I knew all thousand plus faces 
I might not have met them before. I might not have spent time with them before, but I knew them through him. His mom asked me to be a pallbearer, which is a really scary job. <laughs> if you've never done it before, because <laughs> you don't want to mess it up. She asked me to help carry the casket down the aisle. So there I was, one foot in front of the other, carrying the casket. And I found myself gripping the, the bar so tightly that I thought my fingers were going to go numb. Mm. And the truth is, I didn't want to let go of Drew until I'd right. found the right words to say goodbye. Yeah. So we got to the front of the church and I looked down at his polished wooden box and I made a promise to him. I said, I will never stop fighting for a world that you would be proud of. Mm. And for four and a half years, that has been my North Star. Every time it gets hard, every time we go through another tragedy, every time we get knocked down and told we don't matter and told our voices don't belong, I think back to the promise that I made to him with the understanding that it was never going to be easy. Yeah. The world that Drew would be proud of is one that we all deserve. Yeah. And it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Mm. What we learned, what you learned from Drew and what we're all learning here together with you is, is that we don't have to wait until that day happens for us to have that feeling and truth about ourselves today. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Oh. Um, if I learned anything from this experience, it's that you never know how good you have it until it's gone. Mm. And what Drew said that night resonates with me today. I wish we said I love you more often. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and to his point and what you've shared as well is, is that I know from my life sometimes that we have like these big problems sometimes that we think of like these, these things in life that are insurmountable, but it's those little things that I don't realize how important they are that maybe steal love from myself and for other people throughout the day, you know? And so thank you for the reminder of that. What kind of a world would Drew be proud of to live in? Oh my gosh. Do we have another podcast episode <laughs> where we can dive in? <laughs> Part two. Uh, yeah. No, listen, it, I think it's a world where everyone is treated with the dignity and respect that they deserve. Yeah. It's a world where no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter who you love, how you identify, that you belong, that you're mm. valued exactly as you are. And that means a lot of things. It means we have to solve the gun violence epidemic in this country because we cannot claim to treat everyone with dignity and respect while we cast aside their lives in favor of antiquated laws that don't work. It's a world with comprehensive non-discrimination protections for our community. It's a world where queer young people in school have space to be themselves without having to be afraid. It's a world where we don't bankrupt someone for breaking their arm where we don't criminalize people for being poor, where we don't allow police violence to run rampant without doing something different about it. The world that Drew would be proud of is a world that treats everyone better than the world we're in today. I think it's possible. I think it's very challenging to achieve. We're never going to agree on how to get there. But I think if he were here and it were me that were in that box, he would be fighting for the same things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's interesting when, you know, you said sort of just what the arc of the type of world 
that Drew would want to, you know, be proud of. I think so much now of sort of just the difference in uh, generations, and especially within the, you know, LGBTQI community, you know, this younger generation coming up now, I feel like it's just so different in such a positive way than even how it was, you know, four or five years ago. And I, when, when you said that, that it was the world being a place where, you know, people can just be themselves. I see it there. I see it in this next generation of people who they just, they just are who they are. And I think that, you know, for such a long time, that was the mission of the LGBTQI, you know, movement. It's been uh, what so many people have fought for and marched for. And I think that if anything, you know, right now, that's for me, that's the hope that that world is possible with the change, sort of this change of guard with the next generation of LGBTQI people. You know, I, I think often about how easy it would be if I only decided to fight for one thing. Mm. <laughs> how easy <laughs> it would be if I just decided to, to pick one battle. Yep. And, and, you know, let a win on that one battle be sufficient for me. But when I think about the world that Drew would be proud of, the one he deserved, by the way, the world that Drew deserved, it has so many components to it. Yeah. And when I think about the word violence and what that means for people who are around me today, they deserve a world free of violence as well. Yeah. And that can mean a lot of things. When I see someone who is struggling without a roof over their head, I think about the violence that's being inflicted on them every single day. Yeah. When I see someone who is struggling to keep their children fed, they're working two and three jobs, but they're drowning. They can't seem to get ahead. And we continue to keep on and keep on. I think about the violence that's being inflicted on them every single day. The world that Drew would be proud of is a world where all of those people belong to, where we understand that getting ahead in life is not about stepping on, on each other's backs, but about locking arms with each other. Mm. That the only way we're going to make it through this thing is if we do it together. And, and only then, only when we really commit to doing that, it's hard work, but only when we really commit to doing that can we achieve what's truly possible as a society. So. Obviously, you know, your life has changed uh, now in this, in this time period and you do this work. And, and I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I know for myself that sometimes when, you try to, when I try to do things on my own, it can be a little overwhelming. But you talked about locking arms and I've realized that like in any good thing, if any pretty project I've been a part of, like that uh, when I can come together with other people, what I'm able to accomplish. And um, where did you go from, Brandon, from being this this person um, who was working, um, you know, a different career than you're totally in now? Where, how did you start to lock arms with other people? Well, it's been a, a very interesting and meandering journey. <laughs> I think it's important for people listening to understand that it's not as if, you know, tragedy strikes and then people have been groomed in the wings waiting for this moment to rise up as, right. you know, future <laughs> leaders in the movement. We, we fall, we fall on our faces. We, 
make mistakes. We, you know, we, we go through a process and we also are going through a process with our own trauma, right? And, and there's days where being a leader doesn't feel very good to me and I, I need to unplug and hand it off to someone else. Um, but it really started in July of that year. So just about a month after the shooting, we were sitting in Drew's apartment. His landlord let us have it for an additional month. And we were sitting around the island talking about his legacy and talking about the things that he was most proud of. We started you know, saying, well, what would a legacy for Drew actually look like? Uh, how would we keep the best parts of him alive? And the answer was pretty obvious when we started to talk about it. One of the things that Drew was most proud of in, I think it was the year 2000, I want to say, he was going to school at Seminole High School in Lakeland, Florida. And for those of you who are not in Florida, Lakeland is very rural. It's, you know, when it's very quintessentially Florida. <laughs> so, he, you know, he's going to this school, which might not have been the most welcoming environment for him at that time. But he was passionate about creating spaces for people to be themselves. And so in that, that year, he launched the school's first Gay Straight Alliance program. And his goal was just, I want to create a space where people of all identities can hang out with each other and learn more. And so when we thought about the legacy that we wanted to, to create for him, that was the answer. We wanted to help to make spaces for young people to be themselves. So we launched the Drew Project that month. He also named it. That was the name of his social media handles. And he liked to doodle while he was at work. So we also designed the logo. It was all made very easy by Drew. He was setting us up for success. And so we launched the Drew Project that summer, and we've really spent the last four and a half years doing exactly what I just mentioned. We authored and produced the country's most comprehensive curriculum guide for those Gay Straight Alliance programs. We have a mini-grant program where we give away a certain number of dollars a year to GSAs across the state of Florida for them to do programmatic things. Uh, and then we have our Spirit of Drew Scholarship Awards that we give away every year um, to future up-and-coming LGBTQ leaders. We've given about $75,000 in scholarships away so far. And all of those things are made possible because all of us believe in the mission of creating a world that Drew would be proud of when we understand that that mission requires us to build the next generation of Drews, that we right. can't do it on our own, that it really requires us to build the kind of community, the kind of grassroots army necessary to change hearts and minds. So I feel like captured in the genesis of the Drew Project is the sense of community that has powered me through the ups and downs of the last four and a half years. Um, so we, you know, we started that project that's been an incredible journey with that group of people. We're all volunteer leaders that, that just do it because we're passionate about it. I started to volunteer with other organizations in the community. I started to share my story. I, I started to work alongside politicians and candidates um, demanding that they do the things that they promised they would do, mm -hmm. supporting candidates who believed in the same vision of the world that I believe in. And then in 2019, I guess that was just last year, although it feels like this year has been a decade long. Um, <laughs> last year, I, I had a great career at Starbucks. I was working as a regional manager in the Panhandle area. I had 14 stores. I was very comfortable doing the things that I had been doing my entire professional career, but something was gnawing at me that using all of my free time to go and speak and share my story wasn't enough. 
that I was still somehow standing on the sideline and not doing my part. And so in January of last year, I left my job at Starbucks. I came on staff at Equality Florida. We're the state's largest LGBT civil rights organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my goal has been and continues to be to help amplify LGBTQ stories. Anytime there's a conversation happening, I want to make sure our perspectives are being shared. And uh, we're going to just, just to pause for a second to everyone listening, we are going to have links on Brandon's profile to all these wonderful resources for the Drew Project for Equality Florida. And since you did a wonderful job uh, letting us know what the Drew Project is, Equality Florida, you, you, your, uh, your main goal is to end discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Is that correct? Yeah, so we are the state's largest civil rights organization dedicated to full equality for the LGBTQ community. So that's multifaceted, right? On the one hand, it's absolutely policy. It's absolutely fighting for non-discrimination protections. It's also business. It's fighting to ensure that businesses in the state of Florida are open to everyone and treat all of Mm -hmm. their employees with dignity and respect. Um, It's also schools. Our largest program area is actually the Safe and Healthy Schools program where we do work in almost all of Florida's 67 school districts. I think we're at 65 now to create inclusive and welcoming spaces for young people, for teachers, for staff, for parents. Um, So it really is all encompassing with the goal being that Florida is a state where LGBTQ people are treated with the exact same dignity and respect as everyone else. That's such important work. And I know that in my experience, that sometimes we don't want to talk politics. We say, oh, we leave politics out. But you talked about <laughs> well, politics. Well, I'm not, I'm not the one for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> if but, you're but, hoping and, you and, avoid and, politics, and, I'm the wrong one. Well, <laughs> but, right. And, here's, and, and, here, and to your point, and this is exactly what I've had to, because I'm you know, I, I, more of a person that, I, actually, not, that's not even true. I should just stop there. What I'm trying to get at is, is that you talked about policy. And really, in its greatest form of this experiment called America, it's about creating these policies that are continuing to evolve so we become better. This arc that we talk about, this moral arc of, of, of humanity that continues to bend towards morals, ethics, and dignity for all. And so... At a gra- you know, whether it's a grassroots level, like so, I'm not barreling through conversations. So I'm listening and I'm continuing to understand. And 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 I know at least for myself that it's also important for me to be able to listen to like when I'm talking to people, maybe that have been on the opposite side of of, of the issues that I'm at, to understand that oh, like maybe how some policies have affected their business, so I can grow and understand that too. But then also then they're listening to like how this is expecting my my life experience. And so it's not just me talking; it's also listening. If that makes sense at all. Yeah, it does. You know, first I would say, and and I'm sorry if this offends anyone listening, I can tend to want to have uncomfortable conversations. But if you're one of those people who say, oh, I don't do politics, that's potentially an acknowledgement that you have the privilege of not having mm-hmm. politics impact the way you live your life every day. That's yeah. well for, said. for queer people, and especially for queer people of color, and let me be very specific, especially for Black trans women, There is no divorcing reality from politics because their entire existence has been made political. So that's usually my my retort to people is, oh, I don't do politics. And well, that's either an acknowledgement that that you don't recognize the impacts of politics every day um, or just a misunderstanding that that you haven't processed that politics does you, (laughs) whether you do (laughs) politics or not. Uh Um, But to your point, I think what has made the LGBTQ movement so effective over the years, what has allowed us to 
makes such movement in such a short amount of time is our willingness to be authentic, is our willingness to share our stories. It's really hard to dehumanize someone when they're your brother or your sister or your neighbor, someone that you know individually. It's really hard to caricature someone when you actually know them personally, when you have a relationship with them. Uh, And so, you know, the listening part is really important, but the sharing part is really important too. Sharing with the people around you who you are, how you live, how you love, uh, letting them into that that part of who you are allows them to go on that journey with you. I will say you should always protect yourself. Um, you don't want to, you know, expose yourself to emotional and physical harm. But we make the most aggressive strides in the fight for full equality when we are willing to share our truths unapologetically. That's part of why I started sharing Drew and Juan's story. It's part of why I share the bits and pieces of my story that are sometimes uncomfortable and ugly, because I know that the only way the future generation of me's are going to have it better than I did is if I open people's eyes to the experiences they're living now. It's well said. And yeah, well said. I think that, you know, spending time, you know, today having this conversation and, you know, just sharing the story, you know, right here, I'm really hopeful that, you know, those who are listening you know, gain something that they haven't had that they didn't know before. I know for me, I feel like <laughs> I feel like I gained a wealth of knowledge, you know, just listening to you share not just about pulse, but about your own experience and your own journey. And it is important that we continue to listen, like you said, because that's how we learn from other people. But it's also not being afraid to let people know who you are. And uh, making sure that, you know, people know that their brother, their neighbor, their cousin, whoever it is, may be a little bit different from you. But really, in the end, we're all here and on this journey together. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with that being said, Brandon, I think we just want to just stop and just say thank you so much. Um, We love you. And uh, (laughs) we really appreciate being able to listen to your story today. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Much love to you both as well. And and I'm grateful for everyone who tunes in and listens. Please understand that we're on this journey together. Uh, I've only shared little snippets, but know that every one of us struggles. Sometimes we fall down. We all go through moments where we're not sure if we fit in, where we don't know if we belong. Um, but I truly believe that together, anything is possible. Uh, so well, well said. said. Awesome. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Thanks. We want to thank Brandon for sharing his story and for the reminder that if we don't tell our story, someone else will. Visit Brandon's profile on our website to learn more about how you can be a part of the Drew Project's mission to spread love across the nation and promote gay-straight alliances. By doing this, we're helping set up the next generation of leaders to help honor all 49 lives lost at Pulse Nightclub. Together, we can create a world that Drew would be proud to live in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. 
You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store. Thanks again for listening, and remember to be true, be you, and to talk out loud.